Welcome to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Epstein. After popular demand, we deliver our third episode on HBO's show Succession from a corporate governance perspective. This time, we cover the third season of the show. We invited Sean Berkowitz, a partner at Latham & Watkins and former director of the special task force created to investigate the Enron corporate scandal and lead prosecutor in the criminal case against Ken Lay and Jeffrey Skilling. Kate O'Leary, the Global Executive Litigation Counsel at GE, also comments from the perspective of an experienced in-house lawyer who deals with governance challenges in the real world. We covered issues from the first season of Succession on episode 98 of this podcast in May and the second season on episode 102 in June. If you have not heard those episodes, please feel free to check them out. As explained before, Succession centers on the Roy family, the owners of Waystar Royco, a global media and entertainment conglomerate who are fighting for control of the company amid uncertainty about the health of the family's patriarch, Logan Roy. In this episode, we discuss matters related to whistleblowers, joint defense agreements, and the complexities of internal investigations. We highlight the importance of cooperation with government investigations and the need for independent counsel. We also explore the role of activist investors in proxy battles, sexual harassment, and analyze the impact of family dynamics on decision-making. Finally, we emphasize witness credibility and preparation for testifying. If you like this show, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. You can also contribute as a patron on the link patreon.com slash boardroomgovernancepod and subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com. Kate, it is so good to see you again. This is the third season of the Succession Show. By popular demand, we are continuing to record these corporate governance reviews of the show. It's been a big success. We've done the first episode was the first season, of course. We've done a second episode. And uh, now we're going to talk about the third season, and we have a special guest. We are bringing reinforcements directly with experience from the DOJ, now the global chair of complex commercial litigation at Latham and Watkins. Sean, thank you so much for joining us to talk about succession. I'm sure it's not your typical Friday afternoon discussion or Friday morning discussion, but we are delighted to have you to talk to us about some of the issues that are going through uh, succession, which is so corporate governance related. And there are criminal investigations, there are DOJ investigations, there is SEC investigations. So that I'm sure you're very familiar with. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm a big fan of uh, succession. I enjoy your podcasts and uh, eager to uh, to talk with you about the issues at hand in season three of Succession. All right. Well, you know, I have already introduced Kate. And so for those of you who want to know more about Kate, you know, you can go back to the first season. And today, let's let's start with you, Sean. Tell us a little bit more about you and your background. I understand that you were the director of the special task force created to investigate the Enron scandal. uh, and, And you were the lead prosecutor in the criminal case against Kenneth Lee and Jeffrey Skilling really important case in the corporate governance world. Tell us more about that experience because a lot of our listeners may be interested in that. Yeah, absolutely. So I, uh, out of law school, uh, went to work at a firm where I worked for almost six years and then joined the U.S. Attorney's Office in Chicago. 
where among other things, I, I prosecuted corporate fraud cases and I uh, volunteered for duty on the Enron cases in and around late 2003 and ultimately became the director of the of the task force around the time that the, the case against Jeff Skilling and Ken Lay was proceeding to trial. And I served as a lead prosecutor in that and that case, which uh, it's it's a little bit sad these days because as I talk to to people, there are some folks uh, I interact with uh, here who are associates who weren't even alive during the um, uh, <laughs> during the Enron days and don't remember the case. But for those of a certain generation, it was the one of the first big corporate fraud cases to actually go to trial, um, and there was not any certainty that that the government was going to prevail in that case. We tried that case for uh, about four months in the 2006 time period. Both Ken Lay and Jeff Skilling took the stand and testified. And the case, although uh, was a result of one of the largest bankruptcies in corporate history, was really a narrow case about whether uh, those two executive officers lied about certain things or engaged in fraud related to 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 certain conduct in connection with the larger overall meltdown and uh we achieved a a victory against both uh, both executives uh both were found guilty Kenneth Lay died before he was sentenced and Jeff Skilling was ultimately sentenced to uh 16 or 17 years which was later knocked down to about 11 years um in prison okay yes i mean huge case and and so so much experience and knowledge and to inform us with this version of succession. So let me start by the scene where Ken has gone and talked against his father. He has said that this is all Roy's fault. And Carolina, who is the PR person, uh, says, well, now I think you are no longer with the company because you have violated your duty of confidentiality, your fiduciary duties. Remember, Kendall is a board member of the company. And he replies, well, I was acting in the best interest of the company. And he's become a whistleblower, uh, still working with Waystar at Royco. The question then becomes, what can or should uh, the company do under these circumstances? Who uh, says who is acting in the best interest of the company? And what also constitutes retaliation against whistleblowers or what should uh, be done to prevent it? So let me turn it to you, Kate, and then to you, Sean, because retaliation, whistleblowers, that's a whole separate issue that I think we're going to dive in because they talk about this in the show. But let's let's see what's real and not. Sure. Yeah, it's as I'm, I'm sure Sean will agree, whistleblowers are one of the trickiest things you deal with as counsel representing a corporation. The key is you are not, once somebody comes a whistleblower, that doesn't disable the company from enforcing its policies and taking action to prevent harm to the company to the extent that the whistleblower has caused or is causing harm to the company. On the other hand, what you can't do is punish them in any way for being a whistleblower or interfere with their ability to speak to the government regarding what they see as wrongdoing. And, you know, when I, when I started as in-house counsel 20 years ago, I, mean, I remember somebody said to me about a whistleblower, don't consider the source, which I thought was kind of fascinating because a lot of times whistleblowers are 
so-called problem employees who've had other issues with the company. They're often viewed in a negative light even before they become whistleblowers. And for some some of them anyway, the whistleblowing is sort of a last-ditch effort to, to try to recover something from what's a situation that's not working with their employer. That's not true with every whistleblower, but it's true with some. And you could argue that's exactly what's happening with Kendall. He's reached an impasse with his father, where his father is essentially willing to have him be the blood sacrifice and be the one who goes to jail and takes the blame for everything that went on in cruises, even though it doesn't seem like Kendall was any more involved than than Logan was necessarily. And so his last ditch effort is, well, I know stuff about the company and I'm going to be a whistleblower. And the don't consider the source part is you really have to investigate the allegations independent of who raised them, right? Because somebody who is a difficult employee, you know, viewed in a negative light can also be right about certain things. And so the the two parts of it that I would say are key to focus on for corporations are start investigating, figure out, is there merit to this? What do we need to do about it? Now, obviously at Waystar, they knew there was some merit to it, but at this point in the first episode of the third season, they haven't yet started a real internal investigation, right? So that would be step one. And then step two is make sure that you're not doing anything that could be characterized as retaliation, which would be anything like any sort of demotion. I mean, as we'll see later in the season, they get to a, a point with Kendall where he wants to come into the office. They try to block him from coming into the office. And sure enough, once he's there, he causes a huge disruption. You know, it, in real life, what you would try to do is if the person has counsel, you would work with their counsel to figure out, okay, here are what the ground rules are, right? And best case scenario in this situation you'd probably want him to be on some kind of leave so he's not coming into the office um, because he he seems to have confidential company documents. Again, fine line here. If he's sharing those with the government, hard to interfere with that. If he's sharing those with other people, that's a different matter, right? So that would be, you know, a, a, my basic advice would be to try to neutralize him in a way that doesn't feel like retaliation and it isn't retaliation, but that protects him and protects the company and sort of um, freezes things where they are. Now, if you've got an employee who insists on coming into the office under that situation, then you have to find a way to work with that. But that's where it becomes difficult, I think. All right. Well, that's very useful. Sean, Ken is an interesting character because he's not only an employee, he's a board member and he's a very large shareholder. So, how would you deal with a situation like that where you have, let's call it a rogue, big shareholder, director, and employee, and how do you deal with a investigation of this sort? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I agree with, with everything Kate said. Normally, if Kendall were working with counsel of his own to actually help the company and do it in a way that was thoughtful, he would have followed the whistleblower provisions, which typically require him to give notice to the corporation in advance before he goes to the government with anything, right? Here, Kendall has usurped all of those things and decided, for whatever his reasons, to make a public announcement and go to the Department of Justice before giving the company an opportunity to address the issues initially. And so he's already kind of put himself a little bit outside of what would fall under certain normal whistleblower protections. Having said that, he's done what he's done. And so the question is, how should they react? 
And if I'm advising the board here, I would say exactly what Kate said is, look, look, we have to take this seriously just because Kendall may be unstable, may have formerly been a drug addict, may currently be outside of his senses. Let's look at what he said. Let's establish a protocol and an independent line of reporting, which is difficult here. Who is it that was not involved in this? You'd have to remove Logan. They don't seem to be able to remove Logan. But to set up an independent um, subcommittee to address the issues who would probably hire a law firm uh, to do an investigation. And, and just let me be really clear. If he complained about something that was ludicrous and crazy, they don't need you don't need to hire an outside law firm every time you can make judgment calls about whether what they're telling you makes any sense and whether there's any merit to it, right? You don't need to go and spend a ton of money just because somebody has made a claim. But if it has merit, and if you pressure test it, and it appears to have some resemblance to, to reality, you need to look into it because that then protects the company and allows you to be thoughtful in responding when the inevitable inquiries from outside happen. You're almost always better as a corporation to deal with the issue internally in an appropriate way and learn what the facts are. Because once you have a handle on the facts, you can then devise a strategy that is in the best interest of the company and the shareholders. Yeah, I think that's great. And let's set the, the scene here. So basically, at this stage, Waystar is facing an investigation from Senate, from the FBI, the SEC, there are class actions, and there's a potential hostile takeover by Sandy and Stevie. Jerry, who's the general counsel of the company, recommends that they call the DOJ, and they offer to cooperate. Uh, she says, this is the only play here. Uh, they do an internal investigation, and then, and then they promptly report back the findings. And they talk about white shoe law firms, right? We've got to bring like these big name brand uh, law firms to do it. And Logan doesn't agree. And he basically says that he wants to bring another lawyer who's very hostile. He mentions that let's talk to the president, right? Like there is political influence. And Kate, this is a little bit for you. How does that even play out? If there is connection politically, let's talk a little bit about that. What are the potential consequences of refusing to cooperate with the government investigation? Are there any advantages to that approach or only disadvantages? And he does, Logan, he does at least agree to step down temporarily as a CEO. This is interesting. So maybe, Kate, let's start with you. Let's talk sure. about the government relation part of this. Yeah. And then we'll talk with you, Sean, about the government investigation, internal investigation. I thought this was interesting and, and really well done. And I'd be interested to hear Sean's view on this as well in terms of, I think what we see play out in this season of succession is pretty accurate in terms of the, what I'll say, the futility, basically, and even worse than futility, the potential for backfiring of companies trying to use political influence to shut down an investigation, right? It it essentially doesn't work, right? And Lisa, who's the lawyer that everybody wants, right, mm -hmm. who, uh, who ends up representing Kendall, she says that from the beginning, you know, he's, he says, well, what if my dad shuts this down? And she says, he can't do that. And clearly Kendall doesn't quite believe him. And we're not sure if we believe him either. Cause we, you know, we're all trained to be really scared of Logan by this point and Logan can do anything. But part of what we see play out in episode or in season three throughout a number of different episodes is 
is the real independence of DOJ, you know, when, when the government is functioning properly. The president isn't going to override a line prosecutor who says there's something to look into here. And in a sense, you see the more Logan pushes, the more DOJ continues to press forward. The whole situation where they finally get the FBI raid and Jerry said, he says, tell him to fuck off. And Jerry says, these are the ones who don't fuck off. Right. And he, and he says like, what triggered this? And she says, well, I think you spooked Michelle Ann, who's the person in DOJ that Jerry has this back channel to, but Jerry, you know, says some definitely borderline inappropriate things in her conversation with Michelle Ann, where she says, well, why don't you just fire the prosecutor who wants to look into this? Or you could take control of this investigation if you wanted to. That kind of pressure from a company, I, I've i never seen it work, you know? I, I wouldn't try it, right? Because I think it's, um, again, the, the discretion and the judgment of the line prosecutor is, is always going to um, rule the day. Right. So as a result of Logan trying to put pressure on the government, they actually send in the, the troops, to the, you know, the FBI raid, and they physically come into the Waystar offices and start taking documents. So and that kind of segues a little bit into your your second question about or maybe it was your first question about is there any advantage to not cooperating? In my view, almost never is there any advantage to that, um, especially as a public company which Waystar Royco is, because normally, and they they mentioned the SEC a few times here, although the SEC never really mm-hmm. becomes a, a character in succession, but they're always looming in the background. Normally, the SEC and DOJ would be working together on, on a financial uh, misconduct type situation. And in that situation, there's a lot of things that the SEC can do to a public company, in addition to bringing in enforcement action. You know, they can make it very difficult for you to access the, the markets. They can, you know, all kinds of things go wrong. Also, I think that the signal that it sends to investors, if they learn that a company is not cooperating with an investigation, suggests, I think, normally that there's something to hide, that there's some kind of cover up potentially, as opposed to saying, hey, yeah, you know, the government's asking us some questions. We're cooperating fully, um, you know, and and then there's not a lot more that can be said at that point. Um, so that's All right. my view on that decision, but eager to hear what John has to say as well. Yeah. So I'll let me focus on the cooperation point. I mean, I always find it interesting when people debate the, the question. And I say that because when the DOJ is involved, and again, Kendall got them involved and went and brought them documents and opened this can of worms. The company didn't voluntarily turn itself in, right? So we're talking about a Department of Justice that already is aware of an issue and that has come to you and you have to say as a as a as a general counsel or as a board, okay, what do we do? First of all, you don't have a choice in giving them documents. You don't have a choice in responding to subpoenas. They can subpoena whatever documents they want. They can call before the grand jury whomever they want, including Logan. And so the concept of cooperation, we need to put it into context. Uh, I suppose that people could take the Fifth Amendment when called before the grand jury, and then the company needs to decide whether they are going to fire employees who take the Fifth Amendment because they don't believe that they're acting in the best interests of the company or not. But the company is very circumscribed in what it can and can't do. Now, if the question is, 
it, by cooperation, does the company need to turn over its internal investigation and its privileged information? That's a much different issue. And there are a variety of times, uh, in fact, most times when a company very rationally says, we're not going to provide you our internal investigation into what happened. We will give you facts. We will give you witnesses and make them available. We'll give you documents, but we're not going to essentially give you our lawyer's work product. And so there are a lot of times when that makes sense. Um, It rarely makes sense to publicly say, F-U-D-O-J, you know, bring it, bring it on. I mean, Mm -hmm. that just is not a healthy response because you don't have a lot of tools in your kit to, to, to prevent that. Now, you may believe, and the company can take the position, that we didn't do anything wrong, and so we're not going to admit to anything that we that, that you're just suggesting that we've done wrong. And in that sense, we're not cooperating. Um, but we will provide you access to whomever you need to to get comfortable that we're right, that we've done nothing wrong. Yeah. So, Sean, one question then is, uh, since we're talking about corporate governance, what is the correct stance of the board in this context and what should the board do when faced with an issue like this so what i would say is that it is management's responsibility in the first instance mm-hmm. to you know to to make decisions on how to interact and so forth the board obviously has oversight responsibilities and if there is nobody in management who is um conflict free in other words if senior management is the focus of the investigation the board likely needs to to step in the board's role is to be advised what's happening to be told by management what is going on what the response is they can pressure test they can push back and so forth and if they ultimately believe that management is acting in a way that is irrational or um not in the best interest of the company, they can remove management if they decide to, or um, they can, the audit committee can establish a, you know, a, its own committee or can act in a, in a different way. But that would usually be to, to either replace management or to, to, to remove management from certain decisions. Kate, you mentioned at some point that the FBI raided the offices. At that stage, right, Jerry says, these these are people we can't say no to. Right. Because exactly. Logan didn't even want them to, yep. to let, let him in. And so at that stage, they talk about, let's shift to legals. First, what does that mean? And second, they say, well, now let's create a special committee of the board. Yeah. So what's the role of that special committee? And also... Now in the in the season, there are talks about Tom going to jail. Tom offers himself up. And so let's talk about this role special committee would have and what is shift to legals at that stage? Yeah, I, I think what, when he says shift to legals, what he means is they've gone with their second choice, right? They, they couldn't get Lisa because mm-hmm. Lisa is representing Kendall. And so they've gone with a lawyer who has a reputation for being very difficult with the government, right? Very tough. And when he says shift the legals, I think he's saying we're going to call off that guy and we're going to get a firm that is more known for working smoothly with the government. And different firms and different lawyers do have different reputations in that way. And there are lawyers who you'd be more likely to call if you were going to you know, take a stand and, and really fight hard, although as Sean points out, there's not, you know, what what fighting hard means is um, difficult in this situation because there's not a lot you can really do to to resist 
the government investigation. And, and where the key is, is in defining what cooperation means. And I thought Sean was exactly right in that. You know, cooperation doesn't mean we're going to give you all our lawyer notes, we're going to do this or that. It, it means that, yeah, we'll make documents and people available to you. We will come in and have a meeting with you and give you a summary of the findings of because the reason that companies shift to internal investigations is it's usually in the company's best interest to do the investigating instead of having the government in the first instance doing the active investigating. The government will want to kick the tires and you know verify what they're being told. They're not just going to take the word of company counsel. But if you hire a reputable law firm that does a thorough investigation, it helps the company to sort of control the flow of information, to um, figure out what the scope of the investigation should be and and how to present things. And it's also useful to the government, frankly, because they don't have unlimited resources. Mm -hmm. In fact, in my early days of practicing as a white collar defense lawyer in New York City, I remember somebody saying to me, a very experienced white collar lawyer, that one of the biggest ethical dilemmas is you know that you're going to do a much better investigation than the government might be able to do, right? So you as the company are hiring fabulous lawyers with great reputations who have a ton of resources at their disposal and they're going to find stuff right you know probably if there's something to be found and but still in general i think um most big companies anyway think that that's probably the way to go so shift the legals here means get a law firm that the government will respect preferably a law firm that maybe has even dealt with this particular agency or these particular people before and has built up some prior trust, right? Like I know if Sean goes on our behalf to talk to the DOJ, he's immediately got a lot of respect and a great reputation because of who he is. And they know that he's not messing around, right? They they believe that he's truthful, that he's going to do a good investigation. So that's, you know, you want somebody like that who's going to go in and do that. And then this, the role of the special committee is to remove that conflict of interest element of the board. Because what you were saying before, and I totally agree with Sean, that in the first instance, management has to manage the details of the investigation. It becomes complicated at some point because if the board isn't exercising proper oversight, either over the initial misconduct at the company that led to the investigation or the investigation itself, that then becomes a cause of action against individual board members in shareholder litigation. In some extreme circumstances, it can also you know, lead to some kind of enforcement action against board members if they really are somehow seen to be involved in the misconduct or not doing the right thing. So normally with a special committee, you would try to find board members who have the least amount of connection to the alleged misconduct. So you would look mm -hmm. for independent directors as opposed to directors who are also employees or also family members in this case. Um, you would probably look for newer directors. Again, we don't really have much insight into the details of the composition of the Waystar Royco board, but ideally you'd want, if you have them, directors who weren't around when the misconduct happened or have no you know, discernible tie to it. And the idea then is they're an independent smart group of people who knows the company, who can work with the outside counsel and be advised by outside counsel with regard to what are the appropriate steps to take in, you know, in terms of the scope of the investigation, in terms of interpreting the findings and then taking action to respond to the findings and sharing those with the government. So all of those decisions shouldn't be made, obviously, by people who were involved in the misconduct itself, because that 
would be a, a conflict. And normally the board, you know, there's something called the business judgment rule, and that applies in an investigative situation as well. And in shareholder derivative lawsuits, which which we get, you know, not infrequently, the board is allowed to exercise its business judgment with regard to how to handle things like internal investigations, litigation, et cetera, unless you can show that there was some kind of a conflict, right? So here, if they just had the whole board get involved in this, a, a, a shareholder who wanted to challenge the judgment of the board would say, well, wait a minute. You know, Logan Roy's own son says that he was involved in the cover up of this misconduct. And, you know, Jerry Kelman, she's been there for years. What was her involvement? You, you would point to all of the the employee directors on the board and you would say there's no way that this board can make a fair decision about this because these people are all conflicted because of the allegations regarding their direct involvement in the underlying misconduct. Yeah, I think that's that's great. And, and the role of independence is always a big litigation question when they try to dig into whether there's real independence in these directors or not, particularly in shareholder lawsuits. There is another question that I think both of you are in a great position to answer, which is a very narrow question of a joint defense. What is the role of a joint uh, defense agreement? And can you explain the benefits or disadvantages of having those maybe, Sean? Yeah. So a, a joint defense is quite simply uh, a, an informal or formal agreement uh, between and among people who are subjects of an investigation. So in this instance, you know, anybody who uh, is in the line of fire of the DOJ investigation, Tom, Greg, uh, arguably Kendall, uh, Logan, et cetera, would all likely have their own counsel. And there would also be a separate company counsel, right? The company counsel is representing just the company. Sometimes company counsel can also represent individuals if they believe there's no conflict. In a situation like this where individuals may have individual criminal exposure, they'd likely have their own counsel. And what a joint defense agreement allows is for those parties through their lawyers to speak and to share information freely without worrying about it breaking the privilege. Privilege uh, for, for the listeners is uh, in a, in a, a benefit to uh, an attorney-client relationship where, Evan, if you were my client and you told me something, assuming you weren't telling me you were about to commit a crime, I couldn't then share that with the government. If or If you went and talked to your friend and told him the same thing you told me, that wouldn't be privileged they could then discover it and your friend could testify against you. Here, in order for everybody to know what it is um, the, the, the others are saying and not saying, a joint defense allows the lawyers to talk in a way that keeps that information privileged. You don't need to share any information, um, nor do you need to do anything uh, that, uh, that under a joint defense. Here, um, Jerry was sending a, a company recommended counsel to Greg. Um, it wasn't company counsel. In other words, this is a lawyer who would have been Greg's personal lawyer, um, but he would have been somebody who the company sort of sponsored and said, this is somebody we know and we're comfortable with. Um, in, in, in a, I'm going to give an example of how this has played out in real life. I don't know if anyone remembers the Archer Daniels Midland case. Oh, yeah. There, and that, there was a, a movie about that called The Informant, oh, yeah. a book by a guy named Kurt Eichenwald. In that case, 
The government all came in and raided Archer Daniels Midlands headquarters and the company Archer Daniels Midlands sent lawyers to all of these individual uh, executives, including a guy named Mark Whitaker. And what Mark said is, are you my lawyer? And the, yes, I will be your lawyer. And he said, well, I'm the whistleblower. I'm the reason all of this happened. I've been cooperating with the government. And that guy all of a sudden had to say, whoa, 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 I don't know that I can represent you under those circumstances. And here, Greg would have needed to be very careful in sharing that information with a mm-hmm. lawyer who the company had sent to him. So to, to sort of put a fine point on it, individual counsel supposed to represent the individual, but in order to do their job well, many times they would enter into a joint defense agreement where they openly share information that they choose to share. Hopefully that is helpful. Yeah. All right. Well, that is great to understand that a nuance. Let's talk about the shareholders here. Uh, there is blowback on all these uh, DOJ investigations and FBI. And one of the large shareholders, individual shareholders, uh, Josh Aronson, apparently he owns about 4% of the company. He is thinking about switching his vote to uh, the activists that are, uh, there's a proxy battle. And so he invites Logan and Kendall both to an island, to his island, and a show of strength or or trying to pull them out together when he knows there is a big battle between them. And he wants Kendall to close up the outage uh, shop, backpedal and say that it was wrong and, and they kind of refuse. And there's a big scene where Roy is ill. The investor said, look, I don't like to invest in these blood feuds, right? Like, you know, I'm losing about $100 million in all this thing. I want you to get back, you know, to me what do you think about this whole situation? What does it mean from a corporate governance perspective? Maybe we'll, we'll, we'll hand it to you, Kate. Sure. I think it's really interesting. I mean, like so many things in succession, is it real? Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a core of reality to it. Is it blown up into these kind of cartoonish proportions for the for dramatic purposes? Yes. So what I would say is true is that there certainly are activist investors who want to see change in how a company does business. And often it is because they believe that if the company made certain changes that they're advocating, that that would boost shareholder value, right? So often it's they have a vision about cost cutting or they have a vision about you know what the company should be focusing on, uh, as opposed to maybe what the, what the current management is focusing on. So certainly I think if share, shareholders have lots of outlets for their ideas and their concerns, So the relationship between the shareholder and the company has to have deteriorated pretty badly for it it to get to the point where the uh, shareholder or group of shareholders is bringing a shareholder proposal at the annual Mm -hmm. meeting to try to override management's judgment. Um, Does it happen? It it does. Uh, The one thing I thought that was very realistic about this was the amount of money that they talk about having been spent on the proxy battle. At one point, Mm. they say it was $100 million. And I have certainly read that that is about what Procter & Gamble spent fighting with one of their activist investors, who they ended Mm -hmm. up putting on their board anyway. So it's it's one of those things where it's not ideal for anybody. And I think the way that Josh approaches this to me, that episode in some ways is is the heart of the show from a corporate governance perspective in that it shows that corporate governance, proper, effective corporate governance isn't just 
a nice to have. It isn't just some, you know, social agenda. It really is about shareholder value. Because if the people who are running the company at the top cannot get along with each other and aren't looking out for each other and are making decisions based on their personal feuds with each other, as opposed to what's best for the shareholders, that's disastrous for everybody. And I think that's what Josh perceives. And he has 4%. So you would say, well, you know, what can you really do with the, with the 4%? Well, the, the reason that activist investors have so much power is because they have leverage, right? Usually they're influencers among a larger group of institutional shareholders or large shareholders. So a lot of people are looking to wait and see what Josh is going to do in deciding whether they're going to go with the current management or go with this new proposal um, from Sandy and Stewie. And so, and, and you hear that as well in the retired janitors of the Idaho episode, which is also one of my favorite succession episodes, which is the one where they, they are having the annual meeting and the advisors uh, who they brought in to help them count the votes essentially are saying, well, if Josh isn't with you, that you know, it's very hard to see how you win this. So that's really how one investor, even with only 4%, which is obviously nowhere near a majority, lots of others are watching him, listening to the things that he's saying about the company. They think he's right in some ways, right? So if he says, yeah, now is the time to bail on the current management, others are going to go with him, right? And so many issues come to a head in that visit to, to Josh's island. Logan is clearly unwell, right? He has been from episode one of season one. Right now, there are times when he's doing better than others, but his health has been an issue throughout. Kendall is not really looking after him, is, you know, still fighting with him. They go through the whole thing about like whose airplane is going to get there first. And are they going to talk on the tarmac before they go to Josh's? And they they don't even manage to do that. Right. So they can't even coordinate a simple conversation to say, what are we going to say here? And so when they nod their heads, when Josh says, so are you guys going to get along now? They're like, oh yeah, he doesn't believe them for a second. And we don't either, right? We, mm-hmm. we look at that and we say, this continues to be a highly dysfunctional situation. And personal loyalties aside, because clearly Josh has a you know long personal relationship with both Kendall and Logan. And you see flashes of that in this episode. But at the end of the day, he's got it. He's not going to put his money into something that is so badly run and where there isn't a clear path forward that everybody can agree on. So part of it is Kendall won't back down, but the other part is these guys just hate each other and they can't get along. Yeah. And and what's interesting there is there is the famous Wall Street walk, right? Whereas if you don't like, you know, what a company is doing, you can always sell, right? That's a liquidity issue in a public company. Uh, compared to a private company, but you know he still doesn't want to lose the value on his right. investment, right? So, no. so he thinks, you know, now he's thinking about the proxy battle: who's who's right and and who's going to create more value for me, where I don't lose money and and I have a return. Uh, Sean, what do you think about the whole scene on the proxy battle? Do you think it was well described? Are, are there any issues with the settlement where basically they provide more board seats and Shiv, you know, secretly goes out in the last minute and negotiates a deal and and, and gets it done? What do you think about the whole thing? Yeah, I, look, I think that there's there's certainly realism to to all of that, and as Kate pointed out, what there's been a huge spike in over the last you know, 15 to 20 years are activist investors, people who are able to take a large stake in the company that have the potential to 
move the needle. Um, in- and by the way, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but it could be very small, right? Engine number one took 0.02% of Exxon. So now the relevance is that activist voice can be very powerful, can convince BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, Fidelity, ISS, and Glass-Lewis, and suddenly you have 50% of the vote. So, you know, it's interesting to think about that dynamic too. Yeah, and, and different people are, you know, people who've had a great track record or people are going to listen mm-hmm. to more than, you know, Joe the plumber who might buy a couple of shares and say, I think you ought to do this. So depending on who they are, I think that companies watch activist investors very carefully. They try and understand what their issues are. They try and engage with them to avoid a very public dispute or battle. Uh, there are times where there's just a fundamental disagreement um, about the direction of the company, and that uh, uh, rarely spills out into a public proxy battle. But even in those situations and scenarios, even the, the activist investor is almost always in it to make money, right? They're, they think mm-hmm. they can run the company in a way that will drive value for shareholders. And so they are always going to try and negotiate to get what they want. Even if they can get three quarters of a loaf of what they want, it may be better than getting nothing if they go and, and lose. And so there are negotiations all the time. We'll give you two board seats. Um, we will uh, make sure that you have a seat at the table on these types of things. We will. We agree that the cost-cutting initiative makes sense and we are going to spin off this division or we're going to do this, but we won't do that. And and the activist needs to decide whether they're comfortable with that or not. And it may result in something. As you know, these days in proxy battles, there are proxy advisors out there mm-hmm. who a lot of the institutional shareholders look to. Hey, how should we vote on this? And those are very influential third parties that try to independently assess corporate governance issues, and they have a much larger voice than they used to, and everybody is appealing to them about what makes sense. What I will say is it is almost never in a company or a shareholder's interest to have a very public long battle over something where it's unclear who's in control. And when nobody's, you know, when when, there, when there's a fight, nobody's really in control and there's no strategic direction to the company. And folks don't want to be invested in a company that has no strategic direction. And so you see this stock going down. The other point is many times uh, activist investors come in when the stock is on its way down and it's not where it has been. And so most people have already lost money and it's built into it and they want what are we going to do to drive the stock price up in the short term? Uh, rarely do you see people who say, we're thinking 10 years out. We're, where's the company going to be 10 years out? What's the long-term value? A lot of these folks think more short-term. Yeah, no, that's great. And of course, there are dynamics. I think the trend of these larger institutional investors weighing more. In this case, it's interesting. There's a large percentage of the company that is family-owned, which creates dynamics of its own, right? You have a board that is controlled by a segment of the family. They have their own holding company that later in this in the season, you know, plays out. But here's another legal question, and I thought it was a great episode on the sexual harassment of Jerry. And you know, there is a meeting with the bankers for this merger, and Roman sends an explicit picture instead of sending it to Jerry, accidentally sends it to his father, and that creates havoc. At that stage, you know, Shiv talks to Jerry, says, you know, what's going on here? You know, has this happened before? What have you done? Jerry at that stage is an interim CEO, right? And so uh, Shiv tells him, look, if you can't deal with your own sexual harassment, it's not a good look. Uh, You have to make a formal complaint. You've got to go to HR. And 
Schiff tells it, look, maybe we should take this to the board, right? And that kind of freaks out Jerry and says, okay, I'll get back to you. What a situation, you both are advisors here to, to companies. What would you have done or advised in a situation like this? That's a tough one. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll start. I mean, I think that it, it comes down to, I mean, Jerry is obviously a lawyer who is a very sophisticated person. Roman is in a position of power and authority over her for sure. But ultimately, it's Jerry's call as to what to do. Nobody necessarily needs to say to Jerry, you have to do X or you have to do Y. Um, I think that, as Jerry said, look, let me think about it. She may, you know, we don't know. The audience might have a better idea, but we don't know what's in Jerry's mind, what's consensual, what's not. And I'm not suggesting it was consensual by any stretch, but that's for Jerry to decide. And mm -hmm. assuming that she believes that she has been harassed and it's not some low level person, right? This is a general counsel. She understands that she has human resources available to her. She has um, the board available to her and, and so forth. And if I were in a position and she were looking at it, I said, well, Jerry, what do you want to do here? How do you want to handle it? We'll support whatever you want to do. It's very troubling that he's engaging in this conduct. And if you decide for your own reasons not to do something, we still think it important to do something so that Roman's not doing it to others, right? We're now on notice of this conduct and we can't let it go, but we don't need to put you front facing if you don't want to do that. And so there are mechanisms that we can use to attempt to investigate, to look into things, et cetera. So I, I would say that it would be a dual-pronged approach. Give Jerry the respect that she's entitled to and don't force her to do something and make her a victim in a way that she doesn't want to be. But also, if you as a company and board are on notice of this, you, you can't just ignore it because what if there are 10 other Jerry's out there who are actually not in her position? You have to look into it. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right, and it you know it, it puts me in mind of the recent decisions in um, Delaware, you know, in the McDonald's case where they focused on sexual harassment mm. and red flags and who knew what and you know and what did they know and that's the thing that's so interesting about that scene between Shiv and Jerry because they're both sort of right. I mean, I think Shiv is right, but for the wrong reasons. I mean, clearly Shiv has her own agenda. This is not only her brother, who she doesn't always get along with, but it's her rival, potentially, for future leadership of the company. So, you know, she can, I think, as you pointed out, Evan, you know, she has this opportunity to take out both Roman and Jerry, potentially, right? <laughs> by getting them move. By, yeah, by yeah. getting them embroiled in this mess, right? And then all of a sudden, she's the, you know, the the pure one who isn't tainted by any of this. Jerry has tolerated a lot over the years. To me, Jerry is one of the, the most problematic characters because on the one hand, she does a lot of things right and a lot of things arguably could have been much worse without her intervention and guidance. On the other hand, there's a ton of stuff that she turns a blind eye to. And part of that is Roman's completely inappropriate behavior, right? So does she really believe that he's only doing it with her, right? Or does she believe there's a potential that he's doing this with other people? And again, you don't really know. I mean, that that's the show does a lot with these situations of ambiguity where you have to make decisions based on incomplete information. And she and Jerry and Roman clearly have some sort of a, a, a unique relationship right? Put because of their history together, whatever. On the other hand, Roman displays inappropriate behavior with others as well, arguably. And so as the company is assessing, you know, who's fit for future leadership, 
that's relevant information. And I totally agree with Sean that regardless of whether Jerry is officially a complainant or not, somebody, you know, is there HR at Waystar Royco? We're not really sure. You know, we hear about them in the background. Supposedly they're working <laughs> on some sort of a leave for right. Kendall. When, you know, when, when he shows up at the door, Jerry's like, yeah, well, HR is like working on an agreement with him. Well, okay, maybe we ought to get that done, right? So if there is HR, that's something they would want to look at. And the board usually does, or I, I should say should, play an active role in assessing the leadership qualities and other personal qualities of people who are potential future successors to the CEO, right? Mm -hmm. Usually in, again, in, in larger companies with established processes, it would be potentially even a years long process, right? And that would be one factor. I mean, there's other things that we've talked about with Roman as well, his accelerating the rocket launch in Japan, which led to the rocket blowing up. I mean, clearly, and I'm sure there are things he's done right as well, right? But all of it, ought to be considered by the board and certainly the sexual harassment of, of people at the company, even if we keep them anonymous, but, you know, documented instances of inappropriate sexual contact towards women at the company should be a factor in, in assessing whether he, it's he's somebody who you would want to take over the whole thing. Yeah, it's a great show for these nuances and, and to raise these issues and make them murky. Uh, but let's move on to the final part of the season. First of all, the DOJ at some point says that they're not going to charge anyone criminally. You know, Greg and Tom are so relieved. They were uh, investigating what federal jails they could go to, and they were looking into these blogs, <laughs> which I thought was kind of sad and funny. But basically, they say, look, Kendall overpromised. There's nothing systemic, nothing sanctioned, only a number, right? Uh, and no jail. So the Waystar 2 is free, right? And so now they look into this proposed transaction with Gojo. So Gojo is this company that's kind of a tech company run by somebody, you know, this this Swedish guy, Matson, who is a Elon Musk kind of figure who's a mogul and very uh, eclectic, uh, tweets a lot. And, 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 and so essentially uh, they like the deal in part because it's a growth company. It's a tech company. There's this quest for this new vision of where to go. And there are a lot of red flags here. So my question to you is, what should the board in that case think about when looking at an acquisition of this size? And of course, it evolves because at some point it was a Waystar, the acquirer. But as the company goes through and all these investigations, the stock price went down and then they become the target. And there's a fight for control there of the company. But what can you tell us about thinking of these red flags? Of course, later on, we'll, we'll see even more red flags. But at this stage, there's already these red flags. And what can you tell us about that in the process of an acquisition of this size? So look, in an acquisition of this size, the board would have typically given it a tremendous amount of thought. They would have looked at the projections for the own comp their own company and strategy for the company and where it's going, what the long-term prospects and horizons are. They would consider a number of strategic alternatives, including who else is out there that we might want to acquire, what areas are we looking at. They would have uh, retained investment bankers to advise them on, on those issues. Uh, they could do it publicly or privately. In other words, they could, you know, put the word out that they're looking for for somebody, et cetera. So they would have a variety of strategic alternatives, one of which would be 
a merger or an acquisition of Gojo that then turns into a merger of unequals because of where the stock prices are going. And then they set up, uh, you know, what's important to us, what's important to the long term uh, uh, value for the shareholders, which is their mission. And they would, if they if they zeroed in on Gojo, which they ultimately did, they would say, what are the pros? What are the cons? Um, what are the red flags? Let's diligence those. Let's make sure we get answers that we're comfortable with. What areas do we need more information on? Are they giving us what we need? If they're not, are we going to say that this is a critical issue if we don't get comfort on growth in South America or in India, we're not going to go forward, right? They are then in the position of being a very sophisticated buyer and need to understand what's important to them, what's important on the others. They're both public companies, and so there's a lot of information out there, but really need to give it a lot of thought and a lot of direction um, about what's what's done. Management is running the show and presenting these things to them. Their job is to ask questions, is to be skeptical, is to is to be creative and to be thoughtful. And ultimately, they will be presented with a go, no go, no pun intended on on the transaction. Right. Here is the deal that we have. And they may say that price isn't enough or that price is too much or we're not going to do it at this deal. Um, they can help drive that negotiation before they're going to sign off on on something. Um, and ultimately, really, they're governed by what they believe is in the best interest of the company. Now, every every individual has their own incentives, and that's true in life, not just in corporate governance. And some people may say, "I, you know, I like being a director of this company, and and be and I convince myself that we're better off alone and not mm -hmm. giving ourselves up." Some people may say, "This is right for me. It's also right for the company." But they, what they really have to ask themselves is. What's in the long-term best interest of the shareholders? One of the things that you raise here reminds me of our prior episodes that everything the company did was the anti-corporate governance move. <laughs> and in part, it's because Logan is such a strong figure, right? That he's driving this bus and he's not really thinking about his board and his board is going to have to follow him. In fact, there's a scene there where he kind of hijacks a couple or two or three members to kind of tell them that, this is what they're doing and they should just vote for him. So it's it's really interesting. What do you think, Kate, about this uh, transaction and how it's done? And let me pose, a, I think, a, a great scene here because this to me kind of shows the soul of uh, what was going on. At some point, Kendall meets with Rogan in Italy uh, in, in a wedding and tries to kind of settle things down. And Kendall says, look, I, I want to get bought out. You know, I, I realize that I don't want to fight this. Uh, you know, just pay me out, premium payout, two billion dollars plus a chunky asset. I'm going to be divested, and then you do whatever you want, right? And basically says, "Look, I don't want to be this uh, knight on the horseback." And Logan says, "Life is not being a knight on horseback. It's a number on a piece of paper. It's a fight for a knife in the mud." And it's this very dramatic scene where you have these like different personalities play out. And he accuses his father of being corrupt and evil, and he realizes it's all bad. And and basically, Logan tells him, "What do you mean? Like, I've cleaned up after you, after everything you've done, and and I'm the bad person." And he's obviously referring to explicitly when the guy died in in the UK in the, in the car, right? So it's really interesting from the dramatic sense, but we're in the middle of the existential 
side of the company and there's this merger going through. So Kate, what do you think about this whole match and how would you deal with such a difficult to handle uh, person? And and I would say very Elon Muskish and we can think of oh, yeah. Twitter Twitter situation and, and which is probably, if you would want to write about a case, you probably can't even make that up. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think you really put your finger on it there, Evan, because I think that one of the elements that's at the heart of corporate governance is personal integrity and character, right? And part of what Kendall struggles with throughout um, all of the seasons of Succession, but especially in that episode, is he say, he actually says to Logan, I don't want to be you, right? I mm. want to be a good guy. Like, what does that mean? Mm. Looking at Matson, what we clearly see is that Matson is not a good guy. He is already playing fast and loose with laws and regulations, right? He's openly flouting um, rules regarding what you can and can't say about material non-public information. And he's making jokes about it, right? He starts tweeting, right. oh, I feel lucky, right? And he's clearly doing it to manipulate the market, To and, and, and again, similar to moves that that some say Elon Musk has made in the past, where he puts out cryptic tweets, but the people who are looking for that know exactly what he means. It's a signal, right? It's a signal to invest and it drives the price up. And that's wrong. It's illegal, right? And Jerry observes that he's doing that and that it's illegal and other people observe it as well, but they don't shut it down, right? So at that point, I think at the very least, as Sean was saying, as the board is considering all of the different um, factors, many of which are numbers driven and finance driven. I also think there's a part of that this that definitely has to be character driven because first of all, if you can't trust the guy, how can you trust any of his numbers? Mm. You know, not not trying to spoil anything, but I think we can see that there will be um, more questions further on about whether whether what he's even selling them is worth what he's trying to get for it, right? And And his disregard for the law. But again, part of this is Jerry's kind of used to that, right? This is what these people do. So I think she partly is a little bit too numb to that. And she sees what he's doing and says, oh, you probably should talk to him because he probably shouldn't be doing that. Um, but we don't know whether she ever goes to the board or tells them and says, hey, this guy is a problem, right? Because if you were the general counsel of an acquiring company, you would want your board to know that information as they were deciding to get in bed with this guy, essentially, because he's going to be a part of it. There's no way that you buy Gojo or are acquired by Gojo without Matson in the picture, right? Matson is Gojo. Mm. So it's not like there's, it's not like you're buying the assets without Matson. You're buying Matson, right? So what are you buying, right? Or, or who are you selling to? Uh, now, the who are you selling to? Maybe that's less important um, if once the, transaction flips to be more of a sale rather than acquisition. But at the point where they're looking at, do we want to buy this company? He's a big part of that equation. He's got to be. Yeah. And so let's talk about the end of the season. So essentially the the kids, uh, you know, decide that, no, we don't want Matt's in, in the picture. We can do better without him. And he's too much of a liability. He's too much of a loose cannon. And all of us are going to end up without anything. And they realize in their assessment that they can block the deal. Right. And so they think they've got the upper hand. They go back to Logan. Uh, Logan brings them in and kind of like tries to say, guys, let let me do this. And it turns out that he had renegotiated the divorce agreement 
that uh, he had and uh, took away the veto power and the kids didn't know that. So uh, what does that say about, I suppose, family governance and the nuance of this? Because this is a very specific uh, scenario. And how do you deal with a family-owned business where you have different generations, right? Typically, companies don't survive the second or third generation. I think the, the number is like... And 90% of companies don't reach a third generation. But were you surprised of, of this out of a divorce agreement? So, Sean, is that something that, you know, we could see and, and, and uh, I, I guess, play out from a governance perspective? Yeah, I mean, first of all, we call this a family company, but it's a public company at the end of the day. And yeah. their duties are, are more than familial. And I know you recognize that. But your question is, how do you deal with family situation? I mean, really, the only way to deal with it is to come up with a structure that um, that allows uh, them to function and has a mechanism when there's a conflict, right? I mean, here, Logan ultimately was in charge. He left himself in charge and he structured it in a way and, and he created the wealth for good or bad. Um, and mm -hmm. so he structured it in a way that allowed people in his family to be part of it, who he assumed would be loyal to him, but he also kept a fair amount of control. And when he got divorced, he lost the control that was in those documents. And a guy like Logan always has another card up his sleeve. And so he knew that his ex-wife's new husband loved Logan and wanted to be at the seat of power. And so he used that leverage to play chess while his kids were playing checkers. and. <laughs> He was well ahead of them and structured it in a way that they lost the ability that they had. And if I were the kids, they could have acted sooner. They could have done more and they could have kind of pounced when they when they did. But by waiting, they ended up with uh, Logan schooling them in the way of uh, sophisticated corporate governance. Ultimately, it all comes down to the documents. Mm -hmm. Who can vote what? Who has control? Who has the ability in a tie break? And so when Logan was setting it up, given that he created all this, he set set the rules of the family dynamic in a way that advantaged him. And his kids, you know, probably weren't as as thoughtful or as ruthless as as him and brought uh, the proverbial knife to a gunfight. But corporate governance and family situations gets defined when things go public. You have a class A share and a class B share. Mm -hmm. And, and when shareholders are buying in, they either know, look, I really don't have any rights. I'm trusting this family and right. they, they're the class A's and I'm the class B's. Or they say, yes, you're a controlling shareholder, but you have a fiduciary obligation to me to act in my best interests, even if you're a familial person. And that's all part of the bargain that one makes when you buy a share in stock and when somebody decides to take public money. And here we don't know how things were structured or what that was, but but they all have at the end of the day a fiduciary obligation, which honestly they seem to have flouted left and right and operated this more as a as a family fiefdom than a public company. That's yeah, great. absolutely. Yeah, they 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 I think we see repeatedly the family making all these decisions behind the scenes and then just getting the board to essentially rubber stamp it. So you know, I, I think you're absolutely right. There's a lot of things the kids could have done, both in terms of acting sooner, but also in terms of building the case for or against the acquisition, right? In other words, they're depending on being able to block their dad, you know, by what they think are their their rights under the documents, which turn out to have been changed, rather than focusing on how do we 
work with the board to determine whether this really is the best thing or not. And, uh, you know, who knows? Because what the what the kids are focused on is they don't want to lose family control of the company at that point in time. They, you know, Logan is a pain in the neck to deal with, but they they still want to have family control and work that out among themselves. It, that might not be in the shareholders' best interest. I mean, and uh, as nutty, probably <laughs> isn't. Only reason. Exactly. Yeah. And as nutty as Matt Matson is, he does seem to be bringing some shareholder value to the table. And you know, as you know, they start getting into some um, pretty crazy numbers in season four in terms of what's being you know offered. And so, do you turn that down? And and I think this is you know not to preview too much of next season, but. You know, part of what we're dealing with is some of the people with the most influence over the decision have a personal conflict because they want to personally stay in control of this company as opposed to cashing out. And and maybe cashing out is the best thing for the other shareholders and moving on and, you know, yeah. letting letting the good assets of the company be monetized, uh, you know, through an acquisition by Gojo or someone like Gojo. Uh, but again, then you lose, then what is the company, right? What is Waystar Royco? What, what is the role of the Roy family? Um, yeah. And, and one, 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 uh, one question to at least leave our listeners with is, you know, the show is titled Succession. And the question is, who's going to take over the, the, the company? And would any of any of us, including listeners, invest a dollar in a company that was going to be run by Kendall and, and Roman, which yeah. is really what they're presenting us as. Right. I mean, yeah. we yeah. see them with all their foibles. Do we really think that that's a company that's a good idea or would we rather have a dollar invested in a Lucas Matson company? He at least seems to uh, to be slightly better. And, and who knows where Shiv's going to be in all this. But it's, uh, you know. The, the, it really is the question of what do you do with this company and who's going to take it to the next level? Because when Logan's gone, you know, you've basically got a conspiracy of fools beneath them. You know, this is this is so good. And it's so real as well. I mean, I was reading this morning in the newspaper that a very large company owned by Carlos Slim in Mexico, the, the richest man in Mexico, American Mobile, has now a big hedge fund in, in New York, has a $350 million short position. And the people in that company are all the kids, the second and third generation. <laughs> you know, we, we talked about as well, Soros named his youngest son, and it was kind of a Roman kennel thing going on, and he picked his third kid. So all of these things are great lessons. The show is a great way to think about corporate governance and what are the real issues that you have to do. Kate, any final issues before we leave? I think it's been great. Uh, Sean, thank you so much for, for joining us. Uh, uh, we've responded so many questions, but any final thoughts, please go ahead. The only thing that we didn't get into that I would love to hear Sean's perspective on particularly is the way in which Kendall basically messes up with DOJ, right? He, mm. he gets the so-called queen for a day opportunity to come in and tell his side of the story. And they they're not they're not buying it and it, it, it's at that point that the uh, the power dynamic really shifts i think away from him because he he the sort of the height of his power in this season is the episode where the fbi raid happens at the very end of the episode and it seems like okay now people are paying attention but i've certainly experienced um representing witnesses who who do not make a good impression on the government and the way in which that can shift things. So I'd be interested in hearing Sean's thoughts on uh, on that episode. 
Yeah, me yeah, too. <laughs> so, so, so what I would say is if your case is being built on some documents and a key witness to describe those documents, if you're sitting in the seat of a federal prosecutor and you've got an opportunity to interview that person and you're assessing how good is this person, how truthful are they, how will they come across on the witness stand, and can I make a case with this person as my central witness? And Kendall came in and he lied, right? He painted... He wanted to talk only about what he wanted to talk about. He wasn't focused. He wasn't listening to his lawyer. He wanted to talk about all these things. He may very well have been on drugs um, at the time. And a prosecutor looks at that and says, you know what? These documents look great, but I don't have anybody to tell me anything about them. And the one person who's coming in is lying to me, is complicit in some of these things, and is a hot mess. And unless I can build the case with Kendall on the shelf, Um, I'm not going to go after a public company. And so Kendall really did screw Hmm. things up. You know, every time his lawyer stopped, we got to prepare. We got, uh, you know what I'm going to go do this. I got, I got another deal. I got this thing. Let me show you this bottle of wine, right? He's all over the place. The last thing he wants to do is sit down and prepare. And if you are going to go and talk to the government under almost any set of circumstances, you got to bring your A game and you've got to be prepared for hard questions, for, uh, you know, for anything. And if you are not comfortable telling the truth, don't go talk to the government. Um, So he wasn't well prepared. His lawyer did what she could, um, which turned out not to be a lot. And and frankly, you know, if I were his lawyer in that situation, I would have washed my hands and said, I'm not going to bring you in. You're not ready. So go find somebody else. Yeah. And, and, and the one, you know, really big mistake that he makes that I think we've certainly all see clients do is he wants to minimize his own role in things. Right. So instead of coming right out, nobody's buying that at that point, part of the purpose of the, of the so-called queen for a day is this is your chance to say what your role was. Right. And can they continue to investigate you? Sure. But they can't use the statements that you make at that meeting as evidence of your wrongdoing. So, you know, the other thing that you want to counsel clients who are willing to take the time to pay attention, which I agree was the biggest problem here, is it's in your interest to get it all out there, right? To talk about everything you saw, everything that you were involved in, right? Because it makes you more credible. And it also paves the way for the future where you've got the spotlight shining on other people and not necessarily on you. But yeah, he completely fails at that. And I thought that was pretty realistic. Yeah, thank you so much again. And uh, hopefully anyone listening, send us your feedback and we are happy to continue the series. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye, thanks, Evan. Thank you for tuning in to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing leaving a review or sharing this podcast on social media. You can also contribute as a patron on the link patreon.com boardroomgovernancepod. You can check out all the details related to this podcast at the website boardroom-governance.com and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com.